This is Chapter 48 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we highlight a pair of thriller writers, one who writes about an organization known as the University, the other about a female FBI profiler. Plus, we'll introduce you to the real-life Mitford sisters, who some have called the Kardashians of their time. These are exciting times for Terrence McCauley, who, on top of having two books in the works for this year, is also shopping around his James Hicks thriller series in Hollywood. I recently spoke with him about A Conspiracy of Ravens, the latest book to feature Hicks, and yes, I got the story behind that title. This is the third book in your university series, and for those who haven't picked up uh, the books yet, give us a brief overview of where they've taken us so far. Sure. The series begins with a novel called Sympathy for the Devil, which is set in modern-day New York City. I wrote it two years ago, and it's about a, uh, an organization that is called The University, which is um, a quasi-government organization dedicated to protecting the West from threats from the other parts of the world. Uh, they protect our way of life. They protect capitalism. And uh, the uh, main character in the book, James Hicks, uncovers a uh, seemingly benign plot at first that ultimately grows into a much more dangerous plot. In that novel, he thwarts the, um, he thwarts the idea that that could happen and uh, captures the bad guys. And uh, Unfortunately, in doing so, he it draws the attention of the rest of the American uh, intelligence state. That happens in the second book, um, A Murder of Crows, wherein the um, people who are so good guys like Hicks, but don't know he's a good guy, um, try to find out why he has captured this man behind the attack called the Moroccan. And so for the rest of that book, Hicks not only has to protect the person that he's captured, but he also has to evade being captured himself by the people who are also charged with protecting the country. So it creates a very interesting dynamic um, that I haven't seen in too many books. In this third book, A Conspiracy of Ravens, we see a lot of the the, uh, plot threads that happened in the first two books uh, come to fruition. Uh, We see that um, Hicks is now uh, running for his life. A lot of his, I'm not going to give too much of the book away, but a lot of his, um, a lot of what he has built up destroyed, and he has to use all of his cunning and wile to be able to not only rebuild his organization, but continue the fight against the people who were truly behind attacking the West in the first two books. I have to tell you, I found that the titles of your books fascinating. How did you stumble upon doing it that way? Well, Sympathy for the Devil was one that um, I, although it is the name of a very popular and very successful uh, Rolling Stones song, it is, um, I took it based on the the, the, um, poem that the Rolling Stones based their song from, and where you're going to see you know, of course, everyone hates the devil, but you can. But in order to be a, a, a fair investigator, you have to see the point of view of the devil too. So James Hicks is definitely somebody who needs to be open-minded at all times, and um, his open-mindedness is uh, part of the reason why he's so successful at what he does. But with the murder of crows, murder of crows, of course, is a flock of crows, a gathering of crows. So. Crows are sinister looking, they're intelligent, and they uh, are gathering around him 
trying and ultimately closing in on him where he is. A conspiracy of ravens is just another group for another name for a group of uh, ravens. So you had um, in this regard, ravens are much bigger than crows. Uh, they're even more intelligent, and uh, I wanted to convey a sense of uh, Hicks being under the gun more here than ever before. Can we expect another bird-like title for the next adventure for James Hicks? <laughs> well, I mean, it could. There were, were people that wanted me to use um, the group of uh, a word for the eagles, um, but I didn't want to do that because now it's starting to get a little bit silly. But uh, for the next one, they're going to be called the Moscow Protocol or Wilderness of Mirrors. So I'm not really sure which one I'm going to with, but uh, I've been asking people what they thought, and um, I, I've gotten some mixed feedback here and there. Um, and, I, and I've heard that the, the first James Hicks book that we were talking about, it's being shopped around in Hollywood? Yes, it is. Thank God. Um, a good friend of mine at uh, Council Tree Productions has uh, definitely spoken to people in um, Hollywood, and it's being—it's uh, gotten some interest. There's nothing formal yet. There's not even a. Uh, there's nothing. No, no good news to announce at this point. But it's definitely caught the interest of some people who think that it could be a uh, worthwhile series. Uh, for one of the pay services or maybe one of the networks. It's because I didn't want to write a run-of-the-mill spy thriller. I wanted to have a diverse cast. I wanted to have a a modern theme to it. Technology very much plays a role in my books. And so uh, there's not a lot of gadgets there. It's all relatable technology. Um, James Hicks, for example, his his main tool isn't a uh, watch that has a laser in it or a uh, exploding Aston Martin. His is a, um, a smartphone that's hooked into a uh, system known as Omni that uh, allows him to hack into almost any computer system on a network in the world. In that regard, it's definitely a, more, a far more relatable character than you might have with a James Bond or a Jason Bourne. And it's it's interesting that you bring that up because this series of books is even tech savvier than ones you've written before, which have taken place in 1930s New York, stories set in World War One. Are these a reflection of your interests? They are a reflection of my interests. All of my books are pretty much told in the same, not to borrow the term university, but the same universe, if you will, wherein um, all of the characters are somewhat related, but it's not to the point where you have to read one book in order to and what's happening in all of them. Um, my first two books were um, called Prohibition, which is a, a, a gangster noir novel set in 1930s New York. And then its sequel, S- uh, Slow Burn, was about one of the cops from the uh, original uh, book, Prohibition, who now has his own uh, book. And you're going to be seeing that cop again, uh, Charlie Doherty, in the third book coming out in June called The Fairfax Incident. And that is a 1930s story where um, Charlie is now a private detective, and he has to, uh, he's hired to find out how a suicide is not a suicide. And he realizes that's because it was a murder. And the neat thing about this story is the beginnings of the entire university series that I write about in modern day New York. And you live in New York. You said a lot of your books here. What is it about this city that makes it such a great place to set stories? 
Well, I was born here. Uh, I've worked here my entire life. Um, all my family was here. I've traveled throughout the United States. I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. But stories abound here. Um, there's a different energy uh, here than I've seen in any other city, any other place. The people are different. Uh, the, the, they change almost every five years. You get a different group type of people here. Um, you know, some have different priorities. Some have different goals. It's it's never New York is never just one thing. That's why when people say they hate the city, I don't understand what part they hate. It's uh, there, there's so much to it. There's the boroughs. There's Lower Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan itself is divided into several neighborhoods. So um, you know, for me as a thriller writer, I can't think of a more diverse place to write about. Well, Terrence, thank you for taking some time today to talk to us about all your books. It's all good stuff, and we look forward to what's next. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Author Jessica Fellows is no stranger to writing about England in the time between the First and Second World Wars, having written several companion books to the hit TV series Downton Abbey. In her historical fiction novel, The Mitford Murders, she delves between the facts, those are her words, to tell the story of the still unresolved murder of Florence Nightingale's goddaughter. And we get to meet some interesting real-life characters along the way. She spoke to our Pat Farnack about it. Jessica, this is your first novel, but um, as, of course, most people know, you've also written a number of companion books to the Downton Abbey series. And you're also the niece of Julian Fellows, uh, creator of of Downton Abbey. Uh, So you've you've actually sort of lived in these times. You know these times so thoroughly. What must that be like, I wonder, to be so immersed in another time other than our own. I love it. Yep. I mean, it's my, it's my kind of, it's my comfort zone, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I have no desire to live in that era. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's unquestionably better um, to live today. But, it, you know, I, I, there's always so much to learn. And I think there's so many um, parallels with today that I find the knowledge of, of that era is, is an informative guide um, as to how we approach today. So that's for me is why history is really um, important. Uh, And also, you know, and then I find history very compelling because you get people who like to tell you, you know, that it's a very absolute thing and, you know, this is exactly how it happened and it's just not true. There's a lot of contested versions of any single event that happened. I mean, if, you know, I'm sure if you looked back on Christmas Day this year and asked everyone in your family what happened that day, you would get eight or nine different versions. You know, <laughs> that's, true. that's true. Yeah, you know, so everybody brings to the party something a little bit different. And it was, you know, it's interesting to do it with the Mitford sisters, who are a real family uh, of six daughters, and they, they have very well documented lives. They wrote to each other thousands of letters. There have been many biographies. There have been autobiographies that they wrote and memoirs and so on. And they don't agree um, on the facts of their own upbringing. So yeah. I, I thought it would be fun to sort of delve in between the gaps of, of the facts, if you like, uh, and see what possibly joined those dots together. That's so true. I have four younger brothers, and when we talk about the past, people, well, some of them will look at me and say, what? That never happened. Yeah. Not only the, the are the sisters interesting and figure uh, large in the Mitford murders, but it revolves around an actual unsolved crime, and the victim uh-huh. is related to Florence Nightingale. Yeah, 
So, well, it was a, it was a great discovery. In fact, was my editor found um, the a, a newspaper story of this woman. She was called Florence Nightingale Shaw. She was the goddaughter of the famous Florence Nightingale. And like her godmother, she also was a nurse, a wartime nurse. And she um, had worked in the Boer War. She'd worked in the First World War. She was known for being very brave in the First World War, refusing to leave her patients, even when she was just in a flimsy canvas hospital a mile from the front line. Um, you know, when if there were bombs um, being dropped, she she wouldn't go. So she survived all of that. Two months after she gets decommissioned, she takes a train um, to the south coast in England to see some friends and was brutally attacked and left for dead on the train and the murderer was never found. Nobody was ever arrested, even though it was a very sort of notorious crime at the, um, at the time. Everybody was very shocked by it. So this was, I found that there was a potential connection between her and the Mitford sisters. And then I just thought that's just too good an opportunity, you know, not to do something with that. So it became, the book became then this real blend of fact and, and, and fiction, which was quite challenging at times, but also really, really enjoyable. The Mitford sisters, they are such fascinating characters and they are sort of, sort of like the Kardashians of their day. Yeah, they might have been. I mean, they certainly weren't publicity shy, mm. which was quite unusual for their class. Um, I mean, you know, the upper classes at that time believed you should only appear three times in the newspapers, an announcement for your birth, an announcement for your marriage and the announcement for your death. Um, and then, you know, these sisters were just constantly in the papers and, you know, the... the um, the mother once said, if ever I see a headline that says um, that begins Pia's daughter in trouble, she said, I know it's going to be about one of you, you <laughs> girls, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and so I was kind of really intrigued as to what created that, you know, because not mm. only were they all very dynamic um, in the, but they were very different, very different people, mm. um, you know, politically, particularly, uh, you know, I mean, amongst the six of them, you have a, a, a novelist, a very sharp eyed novelist um, in Nancy. She had a very good, clear sense of what her class was like and wrote about them in a very funny way. Mm -hmm. um, and then Pamela came next. She was a sort of good country woman. She's the most sort of sensible of the lot, really, the kind of the ballast, I think, um, of the family. Then Diana, who was very beautiful, married a very rich man and very rich man of Guinness and then left him um, and married Oswald Mosley, who was the leader of the Blackshirt fascist party in England. Um, Jessica Mitford um, married a communist and went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Unity fell in love with Adolf Hitler. Oh, and Deborah became the Duchess of Devonshire and ran one of the largest and most beautiful stately homes of England, Chatsworth. So, I mean, you know, between them, it's just, you know, everything that was kind of interesting about that interwar period is, is represented by them in some way. And so that's why they were just such a great um, choice for a series. You know, it just means I can I can kind of hang my hook on them. You know, through them, I get to explore what you know what was going on at that at, at that time i mean for that reason because each sister is so different um my fictional protagonist uh that we meet in the mitford murders louisa cannon uh as a young nursery maid um and guy sullivan who's a young policeman they're going to stay with us throughout the series so they're the oh. kind of consistent thread 
uh, if you like, you know, so I like, I love, really like the idea of, of looking at the world through their eyes as well, because then, you know, this that mix of of upstairs and downstairs, if you like, you know, um, because so much was happening at that time. There was mm. so much change. It was such a kind of extraordinary, intense period, <clears throat> intense period, because you were kind of coming out of the First World War um, in England. That was that was had really broken the country it was left you know had lost um so many men uh to the war and those who did come back were often very broken in some way injured or you know whether physically or mentally um you know we have no money and and so on and and then then you had the kind of dynamism of the american influence uh on british culture at that time with jazz and nightclubs and cadillacs and refrigerators <laughs> and and this and also but also sort of more this sense that you know here was an opportunity to do things differently you know let's embrace this exciting new future um and so just to say we're really getting going on that then you suddenly had the depression and and then you had the you know we had the second world war in sight they saw that coming from quite a long way off um and i think that really did something to to the national psyche because you had a lot of people who had lost family in the first world war i mean women i mean this happened to my great great aunt Izzy. her husband was killed in the first world war and then her only child her son was killed in the second world war you know and this this was not unusual Mm -hmm. you know these women knew what they were sending their sons to that must have you know can you imagine what that would be like you know we just haven't had to endure something like that Mm. um alongside all this incredible change Yes, and so yes. how they had a handle on that and how they responded to that, I think it's really, really fascinating. Uh, I have to say also that uh, with, with Netflix so big over here uh, now, mm. um, the British crime and Scottish crime and Welsh crime, and <laughs> all these uh, <laughs> these series, I mean, it, they are really capturing uh, the American mag- imagination. And I think your Midford ma- Murders comes along at a, 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 a perfect time for us now. Oh, good. I'm yeah. glad to hear yeah. that. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> any any plans to uh, jump this to the big screen or or the little screen, yeah, for that matter? Yeah, the little screen. Yeah, it's been oh. it's been optioned by um, Left Bank Productions, who made The Crown. Oh, um, oh. So we're developing the script uh, at the moment, and we are going to be taking it out to potential broadcasters um, in the next couple of months. So we don't yet know where it will find its place on the small screen, but that, you know, I'm very hopeful that that it that it will happen. So I'm very excited about that. That's great. We've been talking yeah. with uh, Jessica Fellows, author of The Mitford Murders. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Pat. The Darkness of Evil is the latest book from Alan Jacobson to feature FBI profiler Karen Vale. I recently spoke with him about it and his journey from chiropractor to thriller writer. The Darkness of Evil is your seventh book in the Karen Vale series. Tell us a little bit about it. So I was always intrigued by the concept of being a child of a serial killer. What is it like? Uh, Most of these serial killers are psychopaths, and they don't show emotion. Uh, They don't have emotion the same way we do. So if you're a child of one of those killers growing up, I mean, what is it like uh, having a parent like that, that that cannot uh, evoke the same way you would want or need? Uh, And do they 
find a way of projecting that emotion to their children in the same way they do in everyday life. Because people who, who meet psychopaths, they don't always get a sense, especially if they don't know what, what uh, psychopathy is, they don't get a sense for uh, how a psychopath uh, interacts. And um, so I was intrigued by this concept of particularly if your father, you're, you're a girl, little girl, and your father's a serial killer. Uh, what is it like growing up with him? What do you see that might seem off as you get older? And uh, so I explored that in The Darkness of Evil. The main character is Jasmine Marks, and her father was a very prolific serial killer, uh, murdered 14 men and women. And as she starts to, to get older, she realizes that there are things that don't seem right. Uh, and she starts to put it together, and she goes to the police and talks to them. And they look into it, but they don't have anything. They don't have any evidence to arrest him. Uh, and she doesn't want to be known as the one who turned her father in, because I mean, there's a tremendous amount of guilt associated with that, particularly if you're not convinced. I mean, she has suspicions, but she doesn't know for sure. So this was the, the jumping off point for me relative to the darkness of evil. And as I started to look into it, uh, I realized that there obviously really are <laughs> children who have had serial killers as, uh, as their fathers. If this is what you think of on a daily basis, I can't imagine what other ideas you have cooking. <laughs> oh, you can imagine what people have said to me when they meet me, even friends, when they read my books. They, they'll say, man, you look so normal, but the thoughts you have to come up with these ideas, you know, and then they say to my wife, you know, is he like, you know, what's he like? <laughs> it is pretty funny. Did you happen to speak to any of these kids of, of serial killers in the process of writing this book? You know, that's an excellent question. Uh, no, I did not. Um, once I had the initial jumping off point and I found actually some interviews with women who had been in this case, I felt for what I needed to do and the story that I wanted to tell, and you'll know when you, when you read the book, I, I can't give away um, key points, but it becomes evident that I didn't need to because uh, a lot of the story comes from the characters that I created myself and Karen Vale as a profiler and the, the task force members because she joins the U.S. task force, uh, U.S. Marshals task force um, in uh, in dealing with this case. Again, I don't, I don't want to be circumspect, but I don't want to give too much away in terms of uh, what happens in the story. But um, it, uh, it, it wasn't something that I needed to uh, delve into more than I already knew from what I did in terms of researching and reading the interviews with these women and how they felt. And, um, and I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I researched my books very deeply. Uh, I work with the professionals who actually do the work that I'm writing about, whether it be NYPD, Scotland Yard, local police, SWAT, bomb squad, U.S. military. I mean, it's I, I've uh, criminals, armorers, uh, psychiatrists. <laughs> when I look back at my 24-year uh, career, it's, it's uh, it's amazing the people that I've come into contact with. And honestly, that's one of the 
more fascinating parts of what I do. I absolutely love the writing process. I live to write. I know that sounds strange, um, but it is, it's just, it's true. I'm so happy when I'm writing. I love creating my stories. I love writing my characters like family to me, and they just come alive. You must have quite the wall of visitor passes. Yes. <laughs> I do. I'm not sure which is my favorite. It might be, it might be Scotland Yard because that's so unique. So what made you want to write about FBI profilers to start? So that was kind of a, a oops by accident type of situation. I got my degree in English in New York, by the way, and um, moved to California to practice chiropractic. I know, totally different side of the brain there, but um, I was told by people that, you know, what are you going to do with an English degree? And uh, as strange as it seems now to think about it, I I never considered writing. I had written a novel while I was in college. I, writ, uh, I wrote teleplays for uh, the TV series MASH. I mean, I, was, I, I wrote reams of poetry, short stories. I, I wrote a tremendous amount, and being a writer never occurred to me, at least not that I can recall. Um, so they said, do you want to teach? And I, I didn't want to teach. My mom was a teacher. It wasn't something that I saw myself doing for a career the rest of my life. But I had been helped by a chiropractor, so I, I went to chiropractic school. And for that, I came out to California. And I practiced for nine years, and then I, I hurt my wrist and uh, sold my practice. And while I was in the office during the transition to the new doctor, um, a call came through from the head of the California Department of Justice, and he wanted a referral um, on one of the employees that uh, I had hired because she was applying apparently to the California Criminalistics Institute, which puts out criminalists, uh, CSIs. And I spoke to him. I gave him his uh, reference. And, uh, and then I said, you know, I have a question for you. Because at that point, I had just started writing false accusations, my first published novel. And I gave him the scenario, and he corrected me on a number of things. And I said, you know, can I call you again when I get deeper into this novel? Because you've been really helpful. And he said, absolutely. So I did. And about six months later, I asked if I could come see the crime lab and go behind the scenes. And he said, no, <laughs> can't do that. And now, of course, I understand why. But, you know, he explained that there, there's an evidence, chain of evidence, and, you, you know, you, a civilian can't be in there amongst evidence and so on and so forth. He said, but there's a class on blood spatter pattern analysis that I, I can get you into. Are you interested? I said, yes. I mean, no matter what it was, I was going to say yes. And I, and I, uh, I went a couple weeks later. I came to learn that there was a four-year waiting list to get into this because it was given to FBI agents and criminalists and detectives. And uh, I was not taking someone's spot. I was auditing, but it was just like, wow. I mean, I felt very privileged at that point. And I am sitting in the back taking copious notes, everything the instructors are saying every day I'm writing down. And I looked out of place because none of the other law enforcement officers were, had a notebook, let alone taking notes, right? So one day during lunch, we break for lunch, and 
I, you know, I'm taking notes and there's this big shadow that comes over my desk and I look up and there's this very tall FBI agent there, actually a very tall man standing there. And he, and he says, who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs> I explained I was an author and I was doing research and, and he was an FBI agent and he was on the short list to promotion uh, to Quantico, the, the behavioral analysis unit. And we started talking, and he loved talking about criminal profiling, and I loved hearing about it. It was something I knew nothing about. This is 1990, early 1994, January of 1994, well before CSI started, well before forensics was, you know, on the the the, the, the lips of uh, the average person in this country, and. Um, I, I couldn't get enough of it, and uh, it was his life's passion. He couldn't talk enough about it. And we would have these hours-long, we still do, have these hours-long conversations um, on the phone. Because when he got promoted a few months later, he invited me out to the FBI, uh, profi- the FBI Academy, because the profiling unit was in the basement of the Academy in those days, and uh, gave me a tour and... I ended up making a lot of trips over the years uh, to the, the behavioral analysis unit, and we we struck up a friendship. Today, he's one of my closest friends, and that was uh, you know 24 years later. Um, here we are, and then I started working with his partner, who was a female FBI profiler, the second one ever, uh, and I met her uh, a few weeks after I had created Karen Vale and wrote the first 75 pages of uh, what would become The Seventh Victim, the first book in the uh, Karen Vale series. I was back at the uh, BAU in Quantico, and I was in Agent Safrick's office. That's the the agent that I was talking about earlier that I met at the uh, Department of Justice. And um, we're talking about, uh, well, <laughs> serial killers, and in uh, the door opens, and in walks this woman, and she's you know uh, very worked up about this case, and she's you know uh, going on about this, and I'm she can't see me because I was in the position it was not a big office, and the door was you know open, but she was looking ahead at, at Agent Safrick, and I'm sitting there across from him, and and she's like you know really angry, and I'm worked up about this this offender, and suddenly. Agent Safrick's eyes look at me, and then she realizes somebody else is in the room, and she looks at me, and I'm like, my mouth is agape because I am staring at Karen Vale. It's exactly how I described Karen Vale: redhead, fiery. Uh, I, I just, I was, I could, I, you know, it was, I was kind of like dumbfounded. And she, she points to me and she says, "You're the author, Mark's friend," and I went. Yeah, I, I, it must have sounded so stupid because I was just like, oh, my God, I'm looking at my character. How could this be? I'm looking at Karen Vale. Um, and I think I said something like that. You know, I don't want to take this the wrong way, but my character that I'm writing, it, it's you. And um, she was, uh, Agent O'Toole, was, was very and has been instrumental uh, to this day in helping me shape Karen Vale and understand psychopathy and uh, how how a female profiler approaches these cases and these killers because it's different, as you would imagine, uh, from how a male profiler looks at these cases. And so for me, it's just been uh, it's been fascinating. It all goes back to that one phone call. It's been quite the ride. 
It has been. It really has been. I love every one of my books. It, it really did change my life. It's the sequence of events of, of how it came about working with uh, the BAU and uh, Mark Safrick and Mary Ellen O'Toole and uh, all the places that I've gone and the people I've met. Uh, in fact, I'm headed off to the FBI as soon as we're done with the interview. Uh, to work, you know, with them on the book that I'm writing now. So and it's that was um, going to be my next question. What's next for her and the people in her world? So um, the, the the novel that's coming out June 19th is uh, called Dark Side of the Moon, and it is an obsec team black. It's number four in that series, and Karen Vale. Uh, directs the action along with uh, the two other uh, special forces operatives that I have, uh, Hector DeSantos and Uzi, Aaron Uziel. I was not planning to write this book, but when I came up with the idea and I started looking into it and it started to come together, I was like, I have to write this now. (laughs) I couldn't put it off. The the concept behind it is that... During Apollo 17 in 1972, the astronauts find something on the moon amongst the moon rocks, and um, they don't know what it is. The readings are off the charts. Uh, They want to explore further, and Mission Control says, no, you know, you have a very tight schedule, and you need to leave. Take a sample, bring it back, we'll analyze it here. And um, I actually went back to the, the real mission transcripts, from Apollo 17 and that last day on the moon. And, uh, and I use a lot of that dialogue in, in my scene because I go back. That's how the book opens. And, um, and then that is the jumping off point because what they find has uh, profound implications for the world today. And uh, it's very timely with what's happening. Uh, and in short... Uh, Uzi and DeSantos have to uh, go on a special ops mission to the moon. I ended up working with uh, planetary scientists, astronauts, uh, rocket engineers, rocket scientists, uh, NASA, uh, SpaceX. It brought me into a completely different world, and I brought that excitement uh, and freshness to the pages. And that's Dark Side of the Moon. It's coming out June 19th. And uh, I'm so excited about it. Um, but you know what? I'm excited about every one of my books when they come out because it's a journey for me. Nobody could ever accuse you of not being enthusiastic about what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love what I do. And that's where we close the book on this week's podcast. Next week, we talk to bestsellers Lisa Gardner and Jojo Moyes about their new releases. But between now and then, be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.